And welcome to the podcast, Ashland Podcast with Lisa and Andre and Ian. Say hi, guys. Hello. And What's up, guys? guess what day it is? It is Skinner Myers Day on Ashland Podcast. <laughs> Did you know that we were going to have Skinner Myers Day? Skinner Myers? I, I didn't know that. Um, Skinner on- Saturday. Skinner Saturday. <laughs> Saturday. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. SS. Skinner, 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 yeah. You know, there's a whole lot of SS going on up in here, so you will should feel uh, right on time. <laughs> we'll get to the heavy shit later. Uh, how are you doing this fine weekend? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I just I did laundry this morning yes. uh, before I jumped on here, and the kids had their water play, and mm-hmm. then I vacuumed, cleaned the apartment. Um, we're going to do a little barbecue later on campus at four oh, o'clock nice. Oh, nice. for the kids. So, yeah. So you're on the campus of LMU. So I live on, uh, I live at LMU in the freshman dorms. Uh, I'm a faculty in residence, so I teach here full time and I live here full time. Before the pandemic, I would put like two or three events on every semester for the students just to give them, um, something to do outside of the academics. Right. Mm-hmm. And they got to come over, we would bake cookies and play with my kids and now there's no one living in the building except for my my family and myself and uh, a little creepy <laughs> it is it's a little it's like the shining yeah you know, like, i was gonna say you'll, you'll hear noises and you're like well no one's here and all the doors are locked what was that you know um yeah and so your partner's gonna go to the, the 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 laptop and see all work and no play <laughs> makes skinner a dull boy <laughs> yeah it's gonna go kids we have to get out of here don't hide in the bathroom no matter what happens <laughs> So it's, uh, it's, you know, I'm thankful because we don't have to pay rent, but uh, we're supposed to move out, I think, next June, unless I can convince the school to give me a fourth year for free. So we'll see what happens. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's a good place to be during the pandemic because there's a lot of space. Yeah. So there's a lot of places to hide from covid there you go. That's good. And you're just up the street from us, too. So when we can actually see each other, yes. you're in our neighborhood. Yes. We'll uh, borrow a couple of film stock from each other or whatever we need to do. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. So is, is, drinks preferably. Is, the, is the campus completely closed? Is school ca- uh, canceled or are they still doing so, school? No. So we, we have we're all we're online. Oh. Uh, all the classes are online. But we have about 225 students living on campus right now. Usually we have roughly, I want to say about 2,500, maybe 3,000 students living on campus. So we have 150 uh, athletes, and then the rest are people who had, you know, hard living circumstances. And so they have to move off campus um, after the Thanksgiving break. So they're only here for, you know, a couple more months. Wow. So... That's yeah. interesting. Wow. That's just so crazy. Yeah. Let's get into who you yeah. are and why you, how you ended up on that campus, which is a crazy story. Uh, walk yeah. us through your journey into the industry. Like what brought you to LMU to this moment? And four okay. hours later, just kidding. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, it's like those, uh, you know, those cooking shows where they're like, they're making the dessert and then they bend, bend down and pull it out of the oven. They're like, yeah, there you go. Um, there you go. Here's your career. So here's your awards. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, the oldest of six kids, I grew up, um, my father was a preacher, but he also was a, mu- a jazz funk fusion musician. He still is a musician, still plays. So I grew up um, in church, but also grew up listening to like Teddy Pendergrass, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, like rock, funk. And my mom was a painter. And so I, she told me that, you know, she had a full ride scholarship to this art school in Columbus. And then she dropped out because she was just like homesick. She was a very uh, sheltered 
you know, teen, child and teenager. And so we moved around a lot. And my dad always had a bass, always had an instrument. I had a little drum set when I was a kid. So it was either like hitting on the pots and pans, playing the drums, or just using my imagination to come up with things to keep myself preoccupied. Because, you know, we were, after my dad stopped being a pastor, quote unquote, he, be, he started just traveling and preaching at various churches. And then that's when we just like didn't have any money. So there were lots of times where I remember one Christmas where we couldn't afford a tree. Um, it was like me, my brother, and two of my sisters at the time, just four of us. And my dad came back with a AM FM cassette player and a popple. It was a doll that you could, from the pouch, turn inside out. It's called a popple. It was very popular in the 80s. He had one popple and then one AM FM. He was like, sorry, kids, this is all I could afford. Merry Christmas. And that was pretty much the story of my childhood in terms of not having materialistic things, which was fine because my brother, uh, Josiah, who is 17 months younger than me, and he lives here in Cali, we would just either play with each other till we start fighting with each other, and then we'd go off on our own separate corners, and then I would just daydream about a better life um, and try to use my mind to keep myself preoccupied. So fast forward, as I get older, um, you know, no one had gone to college in my family. I wasn't planning on going to college, but I got bit by the acting bug Pretty early on, I did plays, you know, elementary, middle school, high school. And my one of my high school drama teachers, uh, Pam Bergen, rest in peace, she really believed in my ability as an actor, although, I, you know, at the time I was really untrained and I wasn't that good. And she really coached me to try to audition for acting scholarships for college. And so I went through that, got a couple of uh, offers, but decided to take a gap semester. And I moved to Florida uh, to live with some friends and uh, in that process, trying to discover who I wanted, well, who I was, and what I wanted to pursue, I was that I got a job basically wearing Eminem outfits and sneaking into like Disneyland and SeaWorld and passing out free Eminems as a promotion, and then getting kicked out by security and then followed by cops. So that was like <laughs> my life for six months, where it was like hot, 110 degrees. I'm in this outfit, like dying. People are like, get your candy out of here. I don't want your candy. Like, who the hell are you? And then the cops are like, you're not allowed to be here. And then getting citations. But I was making 20 bucks an hour in 1998. Yeah, but this Doing is Florida, this. though. I mean, this is such a Florida yeah. story. I mean, I'm not even really surprised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember passing out Claritin and people were just like, I don't want that. You trying to give me drugs? I don't want those drugs. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I did that for a while. Wow. I decided to go to college, got into junior college in St. Petersburg, Florida. Couldn't afford the tuition payment. So then didn't go, and then I actually went back to North Carolina because at the time my parents had lived in North Carolina, and I went to NC State for one semester. Um, now, by the end of that one semester, my girlfriend at the time, Kelly Patkis, I know she's still out there uh, somewhere, I remember I was like, I have these dreams of like going to New York and being an actor and being a model. She was like, yeah, that's great, but what are you going to do when you need a real job? It was kind of like shattered on my dreams. So yeah. obviously we broke up. Well, yeah. Hey, Kelly. Hope you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> and I, my GPA was like 1.6. I, I was like, I'm not, college is not for me. So I dropped out. I took a Greyhound bus, convinced my college roommate, Cedric, I forgot his last name, I think Robinson. He just had a brand new Discovery card. He did a cash advance, bought us two Greyhound one-way tickets. We went to New York City. I had a trash bag full of clothes. And my father had preached one time at this church on 33rd and 8th, like years prior. I had never been to New York. And he goes, well, I don't really know anyone in New York, but you can try this church. 
And I was like, great. So get off the Greyhound bus at Port Authority. Cedric and I walk. I remember walking down 8th Avenue. We get to 33rd Street. There's Glad Tidings Tabernacle, which is now a AMC movie theater. Um, but at the time, it had been around for like 60, 70 years. I knock on the door, and they're just like, who are you? What do you want? And I was like, yeah, my dad pretty sure a long time ago. They're like, who's your father? Told them. They're like, uh, okay, we don't. Well, we can give you one night to stay here. And after that, you're on your own. So that was so that was my introduction to New York at 18 years old. Um, basically, the church, I, I convinced them to let me stay there for like a couple more weeks. And then they put their foot down. They're like, we have these missionaries coming in. You got to get out of here. We suggest you go back home. At this time, we had maxed out the credit card. We had no more money. And Cedric was like, yo, I, I have a great aunt that lives in the Bronx. I haven't talked to them in months. So maybe I can reach out to them. So he got in touch with them. We lived with them for a while. That was a crazy experience. Um, crazy, crazy experience. Living in the Bronx in this four-story home where I was on the second floor. Floors three and four had older people living there. And there was these two sisters who lived on the first floor, and they ran that place like uh, a prison. It was crazy. So... What I did was I would get up at 6 in the morning, take the 149 bus from the Bronx to Grand Concourse, take the train into Manhattan, and I would walk around the city for 10 hours. And I lived off a dollar, I lived off about $2 a day for about six months. So what wow. I would do is, you know, the bodega in New York back in the day had these three donut sticks for 99 cents, and then Burger King had chicken sandwiches for 99 cents. Yeah. So I would wake up, go to the bodega, get my three donut sticks, eat one for breakfast, and then I would eat a chicken sandwich for lunch, the donut sticks number two for dessert, and then donut stick number three for dinner. And that was, I was like a buck fifty-five, maybe yeah, hundred and fifty-five pounds. Um, and that's that's how I. Survived. And how tall are you? Of you weighing one hundred fifty-five? I'm six one, six one and a half. So I was pretty skinny. Wow. And I was looking for work this whole time. Like the whole time, I was filling out resumes, dropping off my um, dropping off applications, or filling out my applications, dropping off my res resumes, and. I finally got a job at Athlete's Foot making six twenty an hour, but they couldn't promise me full time. They only could give me twenty hours a week. That lasted for two months until someone stole a pair of shoes from me. So what the guy said was like, "I need a size twelve and a size 13. I got those two sizes. He goes, "Yeah, I think I need a fourteen." I went back and then he was gone. And this was in '99, so that, you know, it was a, you could just kind of walk out of stores, I guess. And I got fired, uh, but I got a job making eight bucks an hour at Jekyll and Hyde uh, restaurant on 57th and 6th as a door host. That's where I met Michael Jackson in 1999. That's a whole other story. Wow. Um, uh, very. This podcast could be four hours long. Yeah, it was very, very. And, um, so Just this whole right in there, yeah. <laughs> this whole time while I'm in New York, I am taking acting classes. I am trying to meet other actors, meet other artists. I am trying to do some modeling. I am trying to find my way into the art world because I just didn't know anybody, didn't know anything. So to kind of make a long story short, I started studying uh, with Michael Howard at the Michael Howard Studios. Michael Howard used to teach at Juilliard. And I also studied at the Gene Franco Theater. Gene Franco, rest in peace. Um, he was around 86 when I started there. And then I found um, an acting coach. Her name was, her name was Patricia Malcerdi, and she was on One Life to Live for a couple of decades. She introduced me to a lot of actors on the show who are still my friends to this day who have moved on from that show and so i started to do off off broadway theater i thought you know what acting is my calling i'm going to be the next denzel um 
didn't help that I booked the role in an off-Broadway play that he and Sidney Poitier had produced about 10 years prior. This was the revival. And then uh, I decided to go to L.A. I was like, 9-11 happened. Let me get my butt to L.A. When they see me step off the plane, it's going to be on and popping. And I was naive. So I get off the plane. I had one buddy who was on As the World Turns. He took some photos, headshots of me. Got a commercial agent the next week. I was like, yeah, this is this is great. And then nothing. I didn't book crickets. I, I mean, it was struggle city. Couldn't find a job in L.A. Slept on couches. Again, back to no money, no food for about two or three years. And um, I shall say the lady uh, who, was my, who became my agent at 19 is still my commercial agent today, Anna Rossi. I've, I've, I've gone on to book a lot of national commercials because of her. So I'm so grateful. Shout out to Anna. Taking that, that shot uh, and believing in me. So I meet my wife. We get married. She gets into grad school in New York. So I have to go back to New York City, 2004. So I'm waiting tables in New York. My wife is in Parsons getting her MFA, just gone the whole time. And I'm just like, okay, I'm back at waiting tables. I'm 24 years old. I'm not acting. I decided to go back to school. So I go to New School University, putts around in some classes. I'm like, ah, this is too expensive. Transfer to Fordham, take some classes there. I'm like, let me try to go to Columbia. So I get into Columbia, and this whole time I'm studying media and film. I'm just like, maybe I can learn about the film business as an actor and then just, you know, uh, give myself more chances. Yeah. And so um, at Fordham, I mean, once I got to Columbia, I was like, wait, I'm about to spend all this money on this degree on things that I feel like I have a good grip grasp on. Let me switch it up. So my wife is from Japan, but she's lived in America for over two decades. And she went to undergrad and grad school here. But her parents still live in Japan. They don't speak English. And I was like, let me let me just like learn about my wife's family. Because at that time I wasn't really um, I was kind of naive to things of the world. I was very I was raised in a very sheltered um, conservative household. And um, when there was tough conversations to be had, it was just, they just weren't had, had right? Like, it would just be, well, let's talk about scripture. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. And so, <laughs> yes, you know, yep. <laughs> it, it was a struggle because, you know, it's like, okay, not that one can't find um, some nuggets of wisdom in scripture, but it's like, I want to have a real conversation about what's happening right now and the reality that I'm experiencing. And I could mm-hmm. never have those conversations with my family. Um, and I now see that it was a way to deal with the trauma of living under the system of white supremacy. But anyways, um, you know, so I, <clears throat> I'm, uh, in the, I'm in back in New York with my wife. Uh, I decided to go to new school. I'm Fordham, Columbia. I'm like, let me study Japanese. So I switched my major last minute, East Asian studies. And I focused on Japanese history and language. It was cool. I did learn the language. I learned a lot about uh, my wife's uh, culture background went over. I went to Japan. I studied f- for a while. You know, would, I have friends over there, both Japanese and American. I have family there, so I would go there every year. And while I was in, while I was at Columbia, I started a band because music was my first love. So I started this rock band called Mina Loy, and I was writing all the tunes, doing the bass lines, the guitar, singing, writing the lyrics. And long story short, we ended up getting a little record deal with a small little label. Nothing really came of it, but at the same time, I booked a, a part in a movie, which I thought was like, oh, man, I have a record coming out. I just shot a music video, and I'm flying to L.A. to shoot this movie with Danny Trejo. Like, I'm about to, I'm, it's about to be on. And 
uh, I won't say what the movie was, but it was a zombie western, and uh, we shot all the horror scenes during the day. And it was quickly, I quickly realized, like, this wasn't going to be my big break. And so that happened. I kind of was, like, bummed out. I was like, let me take a break from this entertainment industry. Let me figure out what I really want to do. Again, I was still bartending and waiting tables. I mean, I was making, you know, three or $4,000 a week as a bartender. But I was like, this, there's a ceiling to this, and I don't want to be doing this forever. So I decided to, well, I was teaching high school for a little bit. Got a job working for a Japanese uh, production company, hated that, got laid off during 2008. I went to grad school. So I went to Brooklyn College, and I was working on my master's degree in international affairs, political science, with a minor in like a conflict resolution. And during my last semester, I had an awesome professor named um, uh, uh, oh, Mr. Young. What was his first name? Um, oh, I'm sorry. This is really embarrassing because Gary Young. Yes, sorry. Professor Young, Gary Young, who wrote for the UK Guardian, now he's a professor over in London. Um, he really pushed my ideals on what blackness was and is and the whole black community. And again, even in grad school, I had these remnants of this bootstrap conservative mentality that I could I didn't shake until I was, you know, 32, 33. I'm 40 now. So um, I went to Africa, I went to Uganda and I made a documentary on uh, what, I, what it was going to be was on um, uh, teen pregnancy, and then it turned into something completely different, and that was called Drinking from the Well. And when I came back to the States and I got that film done, I was like, what do I want to do with my life? I'm done with the music touring. I still want to act, but that's not fulfilling because I'm only going out for roles that are stereotypes, and you know, it's just it's not interesting. And I want to learn how to write. Let me try film school. So I applied to film school, got into USC. I was like, okay, I. people say they're the number one film school. All my buddies who are in film were like, oh, my God, you got into USC, man. You're like, you're on your way. So I was like, all right, I guess. So I move out there, back to L.A. My wife gets a job out here. Go to USC. Within the first two weeks of the program, I knew I had to drop out. But I could not wean myself quick enough off student loans that were paying my bills. And my wife was pregnant with our firstborn. So it took me a year and a half to figure out how to drop out of school, find a job to pay the bills, and then just get back to what I was putting off, which was like being an adult and like living life. Going back real quick, and I, I, wanna, I don't want to stop your flow too much, but USC, yeah. like, what was it at the end of those two weeks that you knew this, that you already knew this, and you were just, what stopped you? Um, I remember I was, so we had to come up with our first movie idea and it was like, you have to be, it's a crew of one. You can't have any help. You can only spend a hundred bucks, um, pitch some ideas. And I was like, cool. Like we're, I'm, I'm amongst people who are artists and we're all about like talking about our art, going against the status quo. Like this is not, um, assimilating into Hollywood. And so when the pitches started coming in, and then I said what I wanted to say, and they were like, wow, that's very fatalistic and dark. And I was just like, well, wait, what, what are we doing here? And then by the time I shot the movie two weeks later, and I got the notes back from class, I was like, oh, okay, I see now. Like, damn, that sucks. Well, I'm going to have to drop out and do my own thing, but I just couldn't figure it out. And it was just basically people were just trying to force me into assimilating into like a Hollywood way mm -hmm. of making movies. And I was like, wait, this is, uh, 
I don't think this way anymore. But I was like, wait, this is college. Like, we're supposed to be open and to other ideals and all that. And so that's when I knew I had to drop out. Um, the so thing I, I hear about USC constantly is that they don't want to make films. They just want to talk about them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that seems to track yeah. very well with what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I have other friends of mine who went through the program. A lot of some of them dropped out. and They were doing very, very well. But we all struggled with um, one. There wasn't a lot of black people in my cohort to begin with. And apparently we had like the most black people in recent history in our cohort back in 2013. And so there's a lot of just crazy stuff where like, you know, the judgment on the stories you wanted to tell were through the gaze of essentially white supremacy or like, and there was no room to even negotiate. Well, you're like an old straight white dude. Like you don't, I mean, like what you're saying doesn't make sense to how it uh, relates to the story I want to tell. But it wasn't just me. A lot of people had issues like that. And it's not just USC. You find that in a lot of universities, right, in all subjects. So once I figured out, okay, I got to leave USC, I dropped out, no MFA. Um, I said, I'm going to make a movie every year. I don't care what it costs. So, because I had made a short film in between my first two semesters, because uh, I started in the spring, between spring and fall, where I got all these co- classmates to help me make this movie called Obscured, which was okay. But we raised money on Kickstarter. We shot for six days all over L.A. I was really proud of it. Had never really made a real movie. Didn't know what I was doing. But we were like, wow, dude, you put this together? And like, you just started film school? This is pretty amazing. And so once I dropped out, I said, you know what? I'm going to make a short every year. I landed on True Detective Season 2 as a, as a um, survival job. And they told me, they're like, you're overqualified. I was in the art department. I was doing research, and I was a PA. They're like, you're overqualified. I said, but I need the money. They gave me the job. And I had found a couple of USC graduates in the writer's room of Mad Men down the street. I mean, down the hall. We were at L.A. Center Studios. So I became friends with them, and I was writing what, was La- what became Latia del Exodo in between the downtime, down uh, times of my, of my job. And I would go down to the writer's room of Mad Men, and they would read drafts, and they would give me notes. So we, I did this. I ended up quitting the job after four months because it was just um, – I had, like, a nervous breakdown. It was basically like I am – you know, like almost mid thirties, I'm making 600 bucks a week. I'm doing PA runs. Um, what am I like? What is my life coming to? <laughs> my wife is thriving in her career. My son is getting older. I have some student films to show and I want to be this filmmaker and I have a lot to say. So I was like, I got to make this short film. I feel like this can, this, if I can do this film, I know I can open the door to other things. So I kickstarted the movie uh, I had gotten a new job as a pr- project manager for a company called Bitmax, and I was basically um, working with labels, music labels, and doing QC on their music videos before we released them to Vivo and, and um, online platforms. So I am like working this job. They'll let me audition, and I am putting together a Kickstarter for this short film. Now, that year, once I decided to quit True Detective, I had booked like five national commercials as an actor as I was working a full-time job. So then I got blessed with like over $100,000 for doing these commercials. And I had never really booked a lot of commercials. So I was like, dope. So I used that money to finish my short film. But we shot La Tierra del Exodo over two days. Two days. I had, I had, it was in the heat in the desert, 120-degree weather. I had eight kids. Wow. There were 50 people on set, including parents. I had to put everyone up in hotels 
uh, Jasmine Medina, who's an angel, she is a friend of mine who was my coworker. She got like her family members from Arizona to bring their children, and they like got in a car and drove to the desert. And I rem- I never forget. And I'm gonna move on after this. I had a hotel reserved. People are driving to um, uh, to the hotel out where we were at in the desert, like past Lancaster. And the hotel's like, they're like, hey, they're, I'm in Costco. My phone's dying. They're like, hey, Mr. Myers, uh, they're saying, like, you don't have any hotel rooms for us. I'm talking like 30 people. So I'm like, put the manager on the phone. The manager's like, yeah, I know we took your reservation, but our sewage line busted and oh. we can't have anybody tonight. Oh. I'm talking like the day before shooting at 8 at night in Victorville. So I'm There's not a whole lot out. of places to stay in Victorville. <laughs> and I'll have 30 people oh, waiting in yeah. the parking lot. Kind of getting upset, like, yo, I thought you were a professional. So I hustle. A Super 8 says, okay, we could make room. That was like a $6,000 charge. I slept in the RV because there was no room for me. It was so crazy. But we got the movie done. The movie played over 100 festivals. And from that point on, I started making And it's amazing. Oh, thank you very much. It's amazing. It is. It was a two-day shoot, and the kids mutinied on the first shot. (laughs) And they were like, it's like sister it's hot here and i was like oh you gotta be kidding me like crew members walked off they like we're not we just we're hungry so we're leaving like it was it was crazy wow crazy but i made that movie and then i made frank and Bree, which really opened up doors which is the next feature i'm gonna make i'm prepping that right now wow and then i made nightmares by the sea uh, and then I did my russian short things of beauty burn and then i was able to make the feature where i met ian Um, and so long story short, I got laid off as a high school teacher because I was teaching film in Beverly Hills. And one of my classmates from USC was like, Hey, I just got a part-time job at LMU that they need more part-time instructors of color. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah. So, uh, Charles Swanson, shout out to him. Who's now a close friend of mine was the chair of the production department and interviewed me. And he gave me a shot. He was like, yeah, we'll give you one class. And then that turned into like two classes as a part-timer. And then within a year and a half of working, they offered me a one-year full-time contract, which then turned into uh, a three-year full-time contract, which I'm in the middle of now. And um, it's really allowed me to you know, expand my network, an academic network, really understand how academia works, which is a lot of good, a lot of bad. And then um, also resources, a lot of wonderful students who have – worked for me. I've become friends with grad students, undergrads who've gone on to graduate and do their own thing. And so there's a there's a new community for me. And now I'm starting to work on my PhD, um, which will bring in another community, a network of, of uh, film people in my life. So yeah, that's the journey. I hope that wasn't too long. Not at um, all. Not at all. Not for me. That was the best answer I think I've ever heard to how did you get into the industry? And I relate to it because mine not is not anywhere near as uh, vibrant as that. Mine was kind of a lot of the same stories, a lot of poverty, a lot of landing on your face. And then I just got out of it. So you're still in it and doing really, really well. I had to say watching your work this morning, just watching it end to end. I hope you won't, throw something at me digitally for making this comparison, but I just kept getting Terrence Malick the entire yeah. time I'm yeah, watching no. your stuff. I hope that doesn't affect yeah. you. No, no, I actually love Terry's work. I mean, not all of it, but no, not um, all of it. Yes. His, his early stuff and 
probably up to the tree of life. Yes. Um, uh, I, I think we were all with tree of life. Like what's happening? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I remember seeing it in the theater and I was just like, Whoa. Um, after that, like, I'm like, okay, he's kind of, um, become a character of some of the thing, like some of the tropey things, but you know, it's like, this is why I love Bellatar so much too. Cause Bellatar was like, look, the touring horse is my last movie. I have nothing else to say. Yes. And he just kind of walked away from it. And I feel like, you know, I watched uh, Hidden Life, and I was like, there's some good stuff in here. But it was very just redundant. Not to disparage Mr. Malik. I am a big fan of his sure. work. But, there, you know, he, um, I believe he was pursuing philosophy uh, at MIT before he became a filmmaker. And I'm, I'm drawn to filmmakers who are deep thinkers uh, because, for me, making movies were, was never about breaking into Hollywood, auditioning for Hollywood, um, not to, not to disparage people who that's their goal. But for me personally, that wasn't why I became an artist. I didn't become an artist, become famous to get rich. I was like, I have so many antagonisms within me and either I'm going to allow, um, the system of white supremacy to turn me into a statistic and do exactly what is expected of me, which is to turn inward or, um, uh, become, you know, like, just to, to do things that would harm myself and my community, or I'm going to fight against it and I'm going to use the medium of film to do that, or music, or acting, or whatever. It's hard to do in acting because you're always speaking words of, uh, that have been written by other people. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think uh, Malik, uh, Tarkovsky, uh, Bellatar, um, Bergman, these are filmmakers, Louis Bunuel, uh, these are filmmakers that I, lo- I, I look up to and I looked at their work and I was like, surrealism and existentialism and, and profound thinking um, and how can I use that for like the black experience, black surrealism, black existentialism. And I want to say earlier about this, my story, my trajectory, like I don't want listeners to think that I, I believe in the bootstraps because I don't believe that <laughs> there are bootstraps to be had for black people. Um, and I believe that any success I have is because... I've been allowed to have the success under the system, and I can only have as much success as the white imagination will allow me to have. And so this is why I feel like it's important to have um, white people who are in positions of power who see how messed up the system is that can allow to, can, can open up pathways for other people to do their own thing and then get out of the way. And so I just want to make that clear that I was, you know, it's not like, oh, I put myself up by the bootstraps because... Um, that's such a mythology that has been perpetrated um, and has done a lot of mental damage within the black community. Well, then black people would be asked to make the bootstraps and they wouldn't be allowed to use them. So exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the goalposts will always, will always be moved no matter what. So just want to put that out there, but yeah, Terrence Malick loves, I love a lot of his work. Didn't mean to insult you. Didn't mean to insult you. Because on the heels of that, what I wanted to say is I see in your work very deeply that it's not for Hollywood, that it's running alongside that current in its own way, creating its own trajectory. And that's what I love about it. It's undeniable. You're undeniable. Your work is undeniable. You can't just look away and you're, yeah. I mean, I can't look away from Frank Embry. And I like the, what yeah. got me, uh, not only is it an old story that happened 15 minutes before we came on this podcast, and it's probably happening now. Lynching has never yep. gone away or never gone out of style. We just do different methods. Either it's Derek Chauvin yep. on your neck or we're putting yep. a bag over your head in the fucking street. Yep. But like watching 
the zoom. It was a, a pull out and a slow pull in for the featurette that you have now. But the listing of the time of death, the 9.55 yeah. a.m., that killed me and just wiped me out yeah. because yeah. you're concentrating on Frank, Frank Embry, and then we just keep saying these people's names. It's undeniable. And it's not yeah. like this... I love that you're not being apologetic to white people. You're not explaining it to them. You're not holding their hands. You're showing white people who they are in history. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. The angry I mean, girl it, at the yeah. end of that, just defiantly yeah. standing there with that. And you stay on Frank's body for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, wow, I mean, what a choice. The feature version um, I'm really excited about because it's going to take some of those um, film aesthetics and and even broaden those. And part of what I want to do with um, my research, dissertation research, is to try to figure out how um, black cinema can create its own ontological cinematic language. Because right now we've just been, I feel like not all of it, but most of it has been like black cinema and white whiteface. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, if you look at the crossover films from the 80s, I mean, what does crossover mean? What are we crossing over to? We're crossing over to whiteness, right? Yeah. Um, that may not be explicit, but that's what that means. What does diversity mean? What are we diversing from? Or, you know, to be diverse of, from, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, so that's like, I, I'm trying to do the research on the theory of what my hypothesis is, and I'm also trying to apply it to what I'm actually doing as a filmmaker. And so um, when it comes to telling black stories, you know, it doesn't always have to be, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be victimhood, but I'm trying to expose aspects of these very common stories, right? Because lynching and slavery has just been rebranded. We're still under the same system that existed when this country. I mean, for a, for a country to be founded on slavery and genocide, um, we, we can't expect that version of America to um, produce anything that's good. No. That version has to die. Right. So um, when it comes to telling stories uh, uh, within the black diaspora under the system of white supremacy, I think it's important to um, try to expose blind spots. That some people be like, well, you, you guys have come so far, you got the right to vote. Yeah, OK, I have the right to vote, but I still can't find a job or I can't get housing or I can't get loan. I mean, what's the point of having, um, you know, capitalism if everyone can't have capital to play the game? And so I think in the films that I want to make, it's like, OK. And to say, like, not all white people are white supremacists, that's, I mean, that's clear. But the system, the people who are, in pow- who are using those power structures, who have the power to destroy it, don't have the will to do so. So I'm just trying to um, expose where I can so that people who are on the right side of history can have even more ammunition and be like, well, you know, I can't, ha- I can't have these conversations anymore because it's like it's not up to me to educate one. And two, like, my life is a living example. It's like here at, at work, we had this whole diversity and inclusion um, five-hour thing. And I was like, this is not really for me or for the five black people who, are, who work here um, because this is, we live through this. Right. So, yeah. you know, I sat quiet the whole time because I had nothing to say. It's like, I, you know, I don't want to talk in circles. And so for me, it's like I'd rather talk through my art and, um, and be connected to people who understand it and because I love people, I love I love uh, interacting with people, and it's just bigotry and hatred that's just uh, 
I can't get down with. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, if people have different viewpoints, I'm not cool. Let's have a conversation about it. And I'm going to try to do my best to sway you. Um, but when it starts to get like, you know, either or, and either you're with this or you're against this, and we're going to basically destroy you. Like, I'm not down with that rhetoric. You know Same. what I'm saying? Same. Mm-hmm. I'm not down with that. It's like, um, it's just so intellectually Where are we heading dishonest. with this? I mean, at the end of the day, you got rid of all the blacks and all the queers and all the ladies yeah. who don't want to, like, yeah. have sex with your nasty self. What happens? Yeah. Then what do you do? Is it just banjos and sister That's fucking? A, I don't know. What yeah. happens? Like, when you get rid of all of the people, what, what does America look like? And I asked you this question yeah. when we were talking about doing the interview, and I said, you know, is there even, is lasting change even possible? Well, that's a great question. I think um, something to think about is like, okay, what what is left for America, right? And I think that if we are really honest with what is happening in this situation and stop trying to gaslight people and saying that, you know, there's no racism, um, America is a Christian nation, blah, blah, blah. In order for uh, true change to happen, one, blackness, black people would have to no longer hold the position of being on the very bottom, right? If you, if you really want to get very meta about it, our position in the world on the very bottom allows the rest of the world to function the way they function, okay? So without slavery or the subjugation of black people and our black bodies, then all the cultures that exist now would not be able to exist the way they exist. So in order, and I say that, because I think in order for America to have true change, the America that we've known since the beginning of America to now would have to basically be destroyed. And that doesn't mean like burn down the continent and just and like burn down everything. I mean, part of that may happen. I'm talking about the mentality and the culture that has to be completely done and wiped away. And a new system has to come in. Now, what that new system is, I don't know. Right. Because in my mind, it doesn't matter what ism is behind it there's still a possibility for black people to, you know, um, maintain the very bottom of that structure. Okay, say we have communism, socialism, and black people are still at the bottom, then it still sucks for black people. So my thing is, like, what's a more just system? If we can focus on what is just, what is justice, then it, it, let that be what it is. Like, why name it uh, after something? Because... Um, America is not really ready for that. Too many people are benefiting off the system of white supremacy, not in America, but globally. And why would they want to change? Right. I mean, you right. look at the wealth gap. I mean, these people are just worked looting. out so far. Yeah. yeah, worked it out. And so back to your question, if black people were eradicated and every marginalized group was eradicated, you know, like look at war. It's like um, when Africa almost came close to uniting as a continent. I mean, leaders uh, who were pushing for that were assassinated. Right. And in place be, after them were put in, were puppets. Like, you know. And so war's big business. I feel like the powers that be would always find a way um, to fight true justice because it would not fill their pocketbooks. So I don't know. It's a hard question because I don't know if that, that change can happen in, in our lifetime. I don't know if it could happen in my children's lifetime. I know we can fight against it, 
But um, in order for America to have true change, the version of America as we know it would have to cease to exist. The world as we know it and how it relates to each other would have to cease to exist. And a lot of people don't want to go there just mentally. Like, we need to be able to think that meta because I don't have an answer. But we got to dwell on the nastiness of it because everything else is just Band-Aids. Absolutely. On this problem that we all know is not working. Eight like, years of a black president didn't fix a whole lot, did it? No, of course not. Of course not. I mean, and they, people talk about, like, we're in this late stage of capitalism. They talk about capitalism. And I'm like, okay, I could um, listen to your argument if black people and marginalized people had access to capital. How do you become wealthy under this system? You have to have access to real estate, uh, uh, participating in the market, bonds, like stocks. Like, I have $390,000 in student loan debt. I make a decent amount of money. My wife makes a decent amount of money. But, like, I'm still technically in the red for the rest of my life. Yeah. Unless, unless uh, I somehow get the permission to make a lot of money as a filmmaker, and then I can start to pay down that debt. But I have to come up with $390,000 to break even right now. I have no money for the stock market. I had a condo, and that helped me. I sold it, and it helped me... Um, you know, pay down some debt, but I bought that condo with student loan money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Private student loan money 12 yeah. years ago. Um, so it's like... And that's if, a slow lynching, right? That's a slow yeah, lynching of... Yeah, it's slow motion. Yeah, it's... it's uh, systems are in place to make sure that if you do succeed under this system, it's because you have permission to. But it's like uh, Neely Fuller Jr., someone I've been listening to lately, he says, what's the point of... He's like, we're all slaves on a ship, and the captain of the ship decides what happens. So what hap why do slaves fight for respect amongst each other? You're still a slave. You're still chained to each other. That's right. So it doesn't matter if I'm a billionaire, a black billionaire. This, the mythology of that there's black capitalism can save us, that's a myth. Um, I mean, we're 13% of the population, 56% of the prison population. You take all of the wealthy black people in this country, put our money together, ain't going to do much. That's right. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but again, that's marketing propaganda from the system to make black people be distracted thinking, well, if we just stop buying Jordans and save our money, then we can participate. And that's not true. Hmm. So the white people, white people who give a shit, they need to be complicit in this. They need to be complicit in anti-racism and be vehemently yeah. so and, and violently so in some cases, many yeah, cases. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, what I see needs to happen. I'm just looking like yeah. we can't. I mean, sometimes I see some of these protests that's going on, and I'm like, is that happening though? And I'm not talking about the young children in the street. I'm talking about the shit that goes on. I'm just like, Megan's yeah. out there wilding out, like, you know, doing stuff. And then some of these yeah. people are being infiltrated by um, white supremacist groups. Uh, yeah. So the Megans and the, will go out there and, you know, sweep yeah. any movement away from the black voices. There's so much crazy yeah. shit going on. And they've well, been doing this forever. They have infiltrated every oh, yeah. movement like this. So. Yeah. Well, let's look at what's going on in Portland. Um, there was a report that came out, I think, yesterday that said 90% of Black Lives Matter protests have been peaceful. That's right. Which yeah. I think we all know that. But, again, the media needs ratings, and they need to create a fake uh, culture war. And so if you look at the um, protests that are going on in Portland, 95% of those people are white. Yeah. And it's not to say that, oh, I'm glad that, people outside of black people are seeing what's messed up, but what are the motivations of some of those people? Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, whenever 
there's violence, even if it's in Portland, they're going to attack, they're going to um, tack on BLM, right? Uh, because that creates a narrative where, like, it's, you know, black people are, you know, the, men, the black men are monsters and are, um, need to be put down violently, and black women are over-sexualized. But it's just, it's like, it's so tropey and so tiresome. And people, I don't see why people can't see through this redundant, repetitive narrative that you can find uh, that goes way, way, way back, right? Yeah. See, so, so freaking um, DeMille, like, brought the, he invented the burning yeah. cross. Yeah. White yeah. people yeah. are not that imaginative, and I think that's why they're challenged. Why why QAnon yeah. takes off? I just have a theory that it's just yeah. it just feels good to bathe your stupid brain in dumbness yeah. and laziness. Yeah. It's all about laziness. So well, yeah, even that even that headline about how ninety percent of those protests are peaceful. There's still an underlying element to that that any change, radical change of this country, the only way to do it is to riot and sometimes violently yeah that's where marginalized groups are are forced to to what, what they're forced to do i mean that's how we got anything that's how we got the votes that's how we got you know gay marriage in the supreme court and yeah. and even the it, ever since june started with all of these protests there have been some changes but nearly not enough you know brianna taylor's killers are still not arrested and convicted a whole bunch yeah. of slave catchers have well, not come to justice. A, whole, yeah. a whole bunch of yeah. them have not been convicted yeah well, yeah. well it, it's funny when white people are like well you can protest but protest peacefully i mean what do you think the civil war was <laughs> yeah and it's always and y'all lost i just want to let you know y'all lost yeah. yeah i mean like it's uh you violently slaughtered each other yeah. over who could control the slave market right and it wasn't like the north was like Oh yeah, we want to free the slaves. I mean, yeah. it was a it was a strategy. Yeah. I mean, basically, it was just like, who's going to get the fair share? Yeah. Um, so, like, I hate. And also, let's look at looting. The truth is, looting is a redistribution of wealth. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have systems in place where uh, people felt like they had to sell drugs because they've been squeezed out of the marketplace, or they didn't have to loot because there's no way for them to pay uh, pay bills or feed their children. We wouldn't have that issue. And honestly, um, I forgot who said I was reading something where there was a, a riot, a looting riot in New York, I believe in the, in the 80s, which basically birthed the DJ industry, right? Because you had all these people looting, um, uh, like DJ equipment, and then you birthed this industry because everyone now had the resources to make this music. And literally because of that riot and looting, an industry was formed. And look how many DJs we have now. Right so, now. <laughs> like, people like to, um, what kind of gets me going is, like, people who feel like they have moral authority to speak on any subject. And I'm like, if you are in America and you're talking down to um, an already marginalized group, you have no moral authority. Because it's because of the systems that have been in place and the policies. It's not like we haven't had opportunity. If America wanted to get rid of the wealth gap, America get, could get rid of the wealth gap. Yeah. If we wanted to get rid of homelessness, yeah. we could. We could. But the people in power need those things to maintain their status. They don't want to do it. That's right. Like, yeah. it's not like we don't have the ability to do it. Yeah. And this is what people have been saying in the streets. This is what um, activists have been saying. We have the power, but they don't want to do it. And, you know, it's like, at some point, how, how long can you push people up against the wall until they fight back? Um, because... 
what ends up happening is America will potentially cannibalize itself. I agree. And there, and there will be no America. We're on the verge of it right now. Yeah. We, we've been on this verge yeah. before. People are like, yeah. oh, Trump yeah. is bad. We've been here before. If you've been long, I'm 56. Oh, yeah. I've had friends who are in their 80s. They're like, we've seen this shit before. They just rebranded yeah, this just, crap. Yeah. Exactly. However, exactly. I had to say, I've seen a lot of really pissed off white people. I don't think Trump wants to be yeah. president. I, I feel like Megan's going to get out in the street with Heather and Chad, and they're going to set some shit on fire. I, yeah. I, I don't know if this yeah. moment is going to be a fulcrum and does anything real, real, yeah. but I've never yeah. seen white people this pissed off before. It is kind of heartening. Well, no, it is. And the thing is, like, black people, uh, you know, str- black struggles don't usually advance unless uh, white people are willing to die for those struggles. That's right. Um, or, you know, if you think of it this way, it's like, I remember when all, so when I discovered Frank Embry's photo was in this book, and I remember in New York, they um, had these lynching, um, you, like an art gallery, like these lynching photos, and, you know, a lot of crying, which, you know, is normal. But what happens is that white people have to, instead of looking at a black body that's been burned, or castrated, or lynched, and being like, oh, God, that's that's awful. A lot of white people have to mentally substitute their son, daughter, themselves for that black body to then relate to the pain and suffering. Yeah. And I'm like, why does it take all that? Like, it's a human being. So the subconscious still has this anti-blackness. Like, black people are flesh. Yeah. We're not anything... Uh, related to humanism, like the Frank B. Wilderson Jr. is a professor at UC Irvine, and he's written some really awesome books. Red, White, and, um, and Black is a, a book uh, on U.S. antagonisms in cinema, and he talks about how, um, you know, Black is a negation. Uh, you know, the, the flesh of Black people uh, have been, f- it's feeded upon to maintain and keep, uh, you know, whiteness alive. It's like um, almost like necrophilia. Yeah. And so um, it's like we're almost not seen as human because if human equals white, then black is the negation of that. Right. So we're not we're subhuman. And if you look at Native Americans, because they can claim that their land was stolen, they're half human. Right. Just mm-hmm. a very and it, it, it's a great book. One should read it. I'm doing a very, very basic generalization. But it's um, he he, uh, he breaks down some films through this uh, uh, framework. And it's brilliant. Um, I think he's a brilliant scholar. Um, he even fought uh, against apartheid uh, alongside Nelson Mandela. He's a, he was like a not only an activist, but he he put his money where his mouth was. And um, he's awesome. So check him out. But yeah, so I think like um, we need to get the Skinner gonna... Myers reading list. That's what I'm feeling <laughs> like. We need to post that up. <laughs> uh, I'm glad there's white people fighting uh, for what's right. Um, and we've already seen white people die for what's right. But think about like this, um, Rittenhouse kid. Like to me, that's the epitome of some kid who feels like in order to maintain white supremacy, I, it's my duty to cross state lines with a gun and to kill two white dudes who were protesting against police brutality and, like it's 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 so insane to me. And the cr- and now, cops just treat him like with kit gloves. Yeah, they don't yeah, brutalize him. They're buying hamburgers well, for Dylan Roof. It's like Dylan Roof, exactly. Yeah. Well, a million dollars has been raised for him. He's like, I'm going to get out free. The extreme, uh, you know, the the conservatives uh, are like, he's a patriot. So he's a patriot for killing two white dudes who are trying to disarm him 
since they're fighting for justice, and you're you're saying it was their fault for their own deaths, but this guy's a patriot. But yet, you know, if someone gets shot in the back by a cop, they're a criminal. It's like it's just uh, yeah. and, and it's, like it's Jacob so Blake has been demonized yeah, beyond belief, and I'm like, yeah, what the fuck, like, man. Like to me, it's just so clear what's going on that I. I don't like get incensed anymore. I'm just like, okay, well, that's expected under the system of white supremacy. Let me go do what I got to do. Hmm. Um, and I think for other people, they're starting to realize what's being the game that's being played because social media, although I don't really love social media at all, I'm not on it. Um, it has um, allowed um, uh, some cracks to form in the system where, like, it's hard to really track everyone. Because back in the day, you know, where lynching was legal, I mean, who are you going to complain to, right? The world didn't know, you know. Well, the sheriff did it. <laughs> the sheriff was there. Yeah, exactly. yeah they did it. So um, I do, I mean, I'm not like, I have hope uh, that things will eventually change. Um, I just don't know, how, you know, it's probably going to be a, a while. And I don't think participating in a system that has not been working since the beginning of the system is the way to make change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's like finding people who need the most help and giving them help. And then if I see anything that's injustice, stopping that in its tracks where I can, that's doing the right thing. I mean, those two very basic things. Um, Also, um, yeah, if you can focus on that, whatever that turns into, I think that we'll have a more just world and trying to find a way to bridge the income gap. I mean, it's insane that people cannot pay their bills off minimum wage. Like, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I've always had... Uh, to have four or five jobs because I couldn't pay my bills. And that's what happens with neoliberal politics. It's like everything's a commodity. We're only as good as what we're, our, our value to the, to the market. And it's like, that's why when people get old and they corona came, they're like, well, they're old because they don't see them as human. Yeah. They don't see black people as human. They don't see old people as. It's like, well, they've had a life. It's like, oh, come on. What is this? Yeah. Yeah. That's a family yeah. member. Like, that, come on. That's a grandparent. That's someone's husband, wife, like daughter, son. Yeah. Um, and to your previous point, it would only take a traumatic event to happen to them for them to see that they're real people. Yeah, of course. It always but, happens that way. Yeah. But there's there's something I wanted to get your thoughts on, because I think um, we as a podcast, we've always talked about the power of uh, storytelling and representation and how, I mean, media really, really affects a lot of our societal behavior. So I want to get your thoughts on two things. Mainly, we we've talked a little bit before on um these white savior movies that are still winning oscars somehow um and and the damage that does to our perception of racism because those films really aren't about seeing black people it's about making white people feel better that they're not as racist as the people being depicted in those films (laughs) (laughs) and also we are seeing some some progress on diversity and representation but I think a lot of people have criticized the way it's being talked about. Do you think there's a certain amount of lip service in Hollywood regarding that? Do you think it's, yep. do you think people are really, um, really dedicated to the idea of diversity or is it just a thing that we kind of have to say now in order to yeah. get our film made or to get it, get it released or what do you think? Those are good questions. I have a, a, f- a few points um, I would like to, to bring up. So I think up until now, Anything that has been done in the name of justice in Hollywood has been lip service. If you notice, whenever a black filmmaker or any filmmaker that's not white comes in with something that's hard-hitting and heavy, Hollywood tends to throw money and big jobs at them. 
was like, oh, man, I loved your movie. Here's some money. Make a Marvel film for us, and we'll make you super rich. And what ends up happening a lot of times is that neuters uh, the, um, the radicalism of that filmmaker, that artist, right? They're like, well, they kind of – because honestly, I mean, you have tons of money. It gets comfortable. Um, that's the lure of not wanting to fight the system. And so – and I'm not saying you need to be poor to fight the system. What I'm saying is that Hollywood um, – they will allow you to do one radical film, and then they try to squash that because they don't like the heat. Um, for example, 12 Years a Slave, which there was parts of it that I liked, and obviously I hated the white savior part. And the fact that um, – because like back then, you know, slave masters didn't have to have any justification for the sexual violence they perpetrated. So I didn't like how that movie tried to create a – uh, to, to make sense out of the sexual violence and frustration of Michael Fassman. I'm like, come on. Like, that's obviously uh, not needed, and you're putting that in there because it's, it's Hollywood and people are trying to win awards. And plus, Brad Pitt's company produced it, and of course, he, you know, he's going to be the white savior and not make himself look bad. Now, I want everyone to watch a movie that's going to be hard to watch, but it's called Uncle Tom. Uh, Uncle Tom, it's called Uncle Tom? I think it's called Uncle Tom. It's a it's a slave exploitation movie that was done by these two Italian filmmakers who were who got into a lot of trouble. And to me, that does a better job of showcasing what true slavery looked like. All right, um, people don't realize that. You know, there was there was all kinds of things where you know there's buck breaking where slave uh, masters would have sex with their male slaves to buck break them. Uh, if white women got out of line, um, they at gunpoint would force black slaves to. Um, as a threat to rape their white women. I mean, there's all kinds of deviant, you take any sick, crazy, deviant, sexual, tormented thought that was perpetrated against black bodies, and not only with Europeans and the white slave trade, but if you go back to the Arab slave trade, right? Um, but that's getting to deep history. And so now with this lip service, also too, we have to look at class, right? So black filmmakers who are wealthy, middle and upper upper socially mo mobile uh, uh, filmmakers in class. This whole Oscar so white thing to me was like, well, I'm black and I'm rich and I'm not being represented amongst all these other white people. I want representation. That does nothing for the people who are struggling on the street. So to me, that that's like, that's stupid. I could care less. Um, Oscars don't mean anything. Uh, and so representation in that level, I'm like, that's fake. That's not real representation. You're on the right podcast. <laughs> so... Um, and now, what's what's going on now? I would say that there's a lot, and and you know, again, it's it's early to see what's going to happen. I feel like there's some people who are in positions who, who are sincere about what they're saying, but can they see it through once the noise has noise has died down? My point is like, if there's a white executive, is like, I am down for these like radical voices, but will he or she or they get stopped by their bosses? Right. Um, I don't think the corporations are sincere at all. I mean, we see this capitalism as like this blob monster that just steamrolls over everything and sucks it up. Right. It co-ops everything. It corrupts everything. So if Amazon and uh, Netflix and all these corporations are like Black Lives Matter, I'm like, whatever. Like, OK, black voices. Here's right. your role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's your here's your 10 black movies. Yeah. Tom yeah. Gary, Spike Lee. But if you look at like slavery, slavery, like, slavery. Oh, Quentin Tarantino. What's that fucking yeah. film doing? 
<laughs> you look at like anything from the L.A. Rebellion, like Haley uh, Garima, Julie Dash, uh, Charles Burnett, Billy Woodbury, like Billy, like where are those films and those types of filmmakers? Well, they they got neutered quickly when they came out. Because if you look at Bush Mama, that's an amazing movie. I mean, not to give it away, but it's been out for a long time. At the end, like the mom walks in on a white cop raping her daughter, and she kills, she like beats him to death, right? And she goes to prison for it. And like, my point is, I don't know if the new voices that Hollywood says they want are the are the voices that they need. Like, we'll see. I'm the movie I made, The Sleeping Negro, doesn't pander to any group. So, obviously, if it's successful, it's because I've been allowed to have success by the system. And I understand that. I'm not naive to that. But let's see how far it goes before people are like, oh, this makes me too uncomfortable. And then we got to stop it in its tracks. Because the next movie is going to be even a harder-hitting film with Frank Amber. <laughs> Y'all ain't ready like, for this Frank Amber movie if you can't handle the sleeping what, Negro. <laughs> what I'm going to say and what I'm showcasing and what I'm trying to do with that movie it is such an antagonizing film. Um, and so far, like we got this dope actor, uh, uh, who once I can't, I'm, I can't say who it is yet, but he read the script and was like, yo, like I'm in agents on board. Like people are jumping onto it. Um, but we got to see if I can find basically white money who's down to antagonize their own system. I mean, the thing about white supremacy is that it takes the argument on both sides. It takes both sides of the argument, right, to maintain the system. White supremacy is like it will kill uh, part of itself to maintain itself. So um, we'll see how I can, how quick I can get the money for Frank Embry. But if I can pull that off, that may be the last movie I ever make in my life. That's fine. Um, but it's it's I hope not. It's such a, a damning film. Um, can we start whitefilmmoney.com? Can somebody grab that <laughs> Earl off of GoDaddy just now? Let's start that shit. So crowdfund is so white film money. Let's go. But. But yeah, to, to recap on the question, I don't think Hollywood has been sincere up until now. I feel like there's some people who are sincere, but we'll see if that's true. And I also think um, a lot of black people in the middle and upper class in the industry of entertainment will fight for certain causes if it betters their position while ignoring the lower class position. So that's therefore, I don't think Oscar So White was a big deal because it's like, all right, so what if there's like more black millionaires represented in film? How does that help? A black family pay their bills, and so for me, those are, that's not a fight worth having. I would, if I was in a position where I was blessed to have a lot of money, then how do I, what do I, how do I use my life and my money and my career to, um, to give back to the black community where it is needed the most? In a and real, real what, way, in a real right, tangible, not in a optical political way. Um, and that's what's missing, I feel like, in a lot of circles. So, like, you know, black people um, in entertainment getting on and, and making all this money and becoming famous, that just, to me, I don't see how that really helps people who are really, really struggling. So I, I'm of the mindset where it's like, okay, it's good that you have this accomplishment, but let's not get too boastful, right? Because we're still, we still have not dismantled white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are we celebrating about? Because at the end of the day, we're all still slaves under the system. Um, so quietly, let's build up our communities where we can. And we need white people who've created the system to tear it down. 
But how that's going to happen, I don't know. And I think, like, because Hollywood is not um, – to, to have a career in Hollywood, for me, has no bearing on why I do this. Um, I want to teach, educate, and make the films that I want to make and, and meet people and try to change – not only my community, but the people I interact with, right? I'm only, I can only affect my community, meaning the people I see every day in my life. And then in the city I live in, go out of my way to go to really heavily affected communities in the black community and see what can I do, even though I don't have any money, what resources do I have, okay? And this is what uh, me and some of my black colleagues here at LMU are trying to do. Like, can we go to the inner city schools find kids who want to be storytellers and equip them with the resources and the ability to tell stories That's for free. Like you don't have to pay anything. It's like, we're going to give you the knowledge that we've been allowed to have under the system of white supremacy. We're going to help you um, just get some more tools on your tool belt to navigate the system. It's not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. That's dope. Navigating the system um, through a code of how we should live under the system until it changes. And so that's what we're trying to do because that's all we can do. Like we don't, I don't, I'm not rich. I'm not, I can easily sit down, spend hours with someone and say, this is how um, you, this is how this camera works. I'm going to show you how to work this camera and empower you with that knowledge. So that's, that's what I'm trying to focus on and where I can speak out in academia. I will, if I feel like there's fruit to that, if there's not, I stay quiet and um, I don't know, I'm just trying to be more purposeful in all the aspects of my life so that one, I'm raising children who are going to fight for what's right for others, no matter if they're half black, because in America, they're black. It doesn't matter. That's right. Even if they're one drop, they're black. Um, and try to love on people and work with people, even if they don't agree with my, uh, viewpoints, but are willing to listen. Like, there's so many people that I, like, I think you should listen to something. Okay. Was that any good? No. Then that's garbage. Won't listen to that. Was some of that good? Okay. I'll take that. Leave the rest of it. Like there's a, there's a lot to learn even from the most hateful people because then you, it's like, what's not being said you can learn Mm -hmm. from. Right. So, um, and to people have to keep in mind that the media (laughs) are playing games. I mean, for them, it's a game. This whole left, right, Democrat, Republican thing. I'm neither of those things. I'm neither African. I'm neither American, like Michael Mexi just said. And I have all the sense because I, I know that. You know, I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. I'm not African. I'm not American. It's like, where do you, I exist? And that's what I think for black cinema, at least in my view, we have to start thinking in, in that area. And that's where black essentialism, surrealism comes in. But I feel like there's so much work to be done. A lot of people just want to get a piece of the pie and be happy. Okay, you got your 40 acres in the moon, but I just can't live that way. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to become of me and the things I want to do, but I'm not going to stop fighting for what is right Mm -hmm. for people. And using art to do that, using writing, academia, like wherever I can, you know? Yeah, totally. Answer those questions. Oh, no, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, well, one thing we like to ask people that come on here and, um, we, everyone here on the podcast, since we're all creatives, I think since the pandemic has started, we've had to shift and adjust how we create, how we work, how we write. Mm -hmm. And I know you said you were working on a full feature for Frank Embry. 
how is the pandemic has it has it affected not only that uh, production process, but your personal creativity or creative output or productivity? Do you think it's helped it? Do you think it's hindered it? Like what 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 do you think? So the silver lining in terms of that for the pandemic is it's helped me in a way, and the way it's helped me is that um, I wrote my first novel the first draft of my first novel uh, a year ago, and I had been putting it off because I've been so busy and, you know, traveling and stuff. And now I'm in a place where I'm finishing that book. And also, <clears throat> it allowed me to sit down and increase my reading. I mean, I used to read a ton, and then once the kids came and I was working, and then you get just caught up in the routine of living life and surviving, mm-hmm. um, I was reading like one book every two months. Now I'm back on my you know, 50 books a year trajectory. And that's when I decided that I wanted to take what I had been reading and try to turn it into a research project. And so, um, hence the PhD pursuit. Um, in terms of the production aspect, I, it's, it's, I'm planning for a two-year pre-production for the Frank Henry project. So it's allowed me to really, um, one, really strategically um, plan how I'm going to submit to festivals for the sleeping negro and how we're going to approach buyers and two it also is helping me figure out my planning for the shoot of frank Embry. do i shoot it in russia do i shoot it here do i shoot it in turkey like what's the most uh what's the place that i can go to that has the best benefits tax uh, incentives etc and it's given me time and my agent to send it out to actors because everyone's at home right? right and so we're getting i'm getting people to read the script who probably were too busy before the pandemic to read it. And it's really helping me really put together a solid team of cast and crew so that hopefully once we do get the money and the pandemic's over, hit the ground running. But right now I'm focusing on finishing my novel and starting um, my dissert, like not writing the dissertation, but getting through the initial readings that I need to do before I even start putting the outline together. Um, and I wouldn't have probably been able to pursue that if things were normal with having my two kids and the work schedule that I have because I'm just home all the time, you know? Yeah. A lot of people say they, they suddenly have a lot more time to do things, which to your point about capitalism, like just imagine what we could do in society if we weren't working ourselves to yeah. death all the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All the help we could do. We so, could easily yeah. all just stay home and create things. We, like you said, we have the power to do that. We have the power to do yep. so much and be a great yep. ideal society. <laughs> There's a lot of naive people that don't understand yep. what you said. This system is made this yeah. way. Yeah. Well, look at all the wealth, the one percenters who loot the system. Yeah. They never had to work a day in their life. Nope. Yeah. You think the Trump kids know what hard work is? No. I've been to parties with Ivanka back in the early 2000s. And, like, I'm like, the people that she ran, I mean, like, come on. They don't know what true hard work is. So, um, for me, and it's not to say, like, look, we're under the system of capitalism. We're under the system of white supremacy. We have to survive as we try to figure out a way to free ourselves from it. So, unfortunately, we have, you know, we have to do, we have to work. We have to, um figure out to put how to put food in our tables, uh, food in our mouths, uh, a roof over our heads. But this pandemic is, I think, allowing people to slow down. Because mm-hmm. um, I am I'm still just as busy, but I don't have to, I'm not like in the car busy driving to meetings, right? Everything is at home in my room, but it's, it's forcing me to slow down. It's like, okay, we're not going out to eat anymore. Wow, we just saved all this money. Do we really have to do that? Probably not. We're cooking more. This is what it should have been before we got caught up. Um, do I have to be in person when I'm pitching a TV show? Probably not. We could do it on Zoom. You know, can I, 
do I have to live in LA? Like, it's it's really, I think, slowed people down, and we've realized, like, all the kind of extra fluffiness that we've built up in our lives that really don't matter and doesn't really advance our causes none. It just kind of distracts. Um, and I think that's a good thing, but uh, there, we have a long way to go um, unless, you know, we get this pandemic and then something else happens an act of God happens that destroys the system. I mean, like it's going to take work from people who've created it to, to tear it down, mm-hmm. but we need to keep that pressure. And I think, um, through art, through teaching, through just relationships with people, um, there's so many ways, you know, we can fight. Um, and not to, not to forget to live your life and to enjoy what you can enjoy too. Um, it doesn't always you know, have to I'm be a, about the struggle every single second of the exactly, day. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm a very happy person. I mean, I, you know, I have pessimistic views, but I have optimism. But I'm very blessed and grateful to have a free apartment and my kids and my wife. And um, my son asked me this yesterday. He said, Who's a, what's the most important thing in your life, Daddy? And I was like, well, you and your sister. Duh. And I said, well, what's your most important thing in your life? He goes, my family. And then he's like seven. He's starting to have these like deep thoughts. And it just comes out, he's like, Daddy, can you turn down the uh, radio? I need to talk to you. And we're, like, driving. And that's what he asked me, you know. And so um, this life is uh, is temporary. And so, like, we got to fight. And um, also appreciate the people who are in your lives now. Um, we got to remember those things. It's not always about just struggle, struggle, struggle. But we also have to remember that there's people in worse positions than we are. And a lot of times they don't have anyone to look out for them. And so those are the people I really want to, in my way, best I can, look out for and fight for. Because um, they're always going to get screwed over by everyone else, you know? I have one last question and then I'm going to let you go. Um, yeah. Would you want your children to do this for a living, to, to be in the industry? Obviously, no. parents are going to say they can do whatever they want to. <laughs> but do you want you say no immediately? No, I don't. I don't. My son's been in... Uh, He's so when we made Nightmares by the Sea, it was at the Holly Shorts, so it was at the Chinese Theater. There was like 400 people in the audience, and he got to see himself. And then he was like, "Oh, Daddy, I want to do this a lot." And I was like, mm, "Nah, dude. Like, if you want to do it once you're 18, okay, I'll support you. Whatever you want to do, I'm going to support you. I'm going to help you, equip you with what." But as a child, going into it, like I took him on some auditions when he was younger, and I'm just like, "No, I can't. I can't start this." So I, I don't know. I think. Um, if he's an adult, I'll support him. But as a kid now, if he's a young teenager and he wants to do it, I'm going to probably say, wait, wait. Because it's gotten worse since I've started in 98. And um, I don't know. I just think like... Uh, it can warp you. Yeah, it's just such a... People's lives have been destroyed in the pursuit of That's right. Hollywood and the money and the prestige. Um, families have been destroyed. I mean... And is it worth it? Um, I don't think so. So I don't know. I mean, I I would say no. I don't want my kids. I want, and it's not like I want to be doctors and lawyers. I just want them to find their voice and what they're calling and what they feel like their purpose is. You know, um, I mean, no one like my my dad. Even though he was a preacher, he one thing he did tell me he was like, "Look, I don't ever expect you to be a preacher." He's like, "You're going to live your own life." He's like, "He's like, so don't expect that because people tell you." You have to do that. That I expect. He's like, I don't expect. I expect you to do what you really want to do. And so, and my parents always supported me not going to college. They supported me going to college. They supported me doing films. And although we share different viewpoints politically, they're very supportive of me. My dad always tells me how proud he is of me. 
and they always watch my movies and they always can see my viewpoint. Um, so I do appreciate that, you know, about my folks. They've always been supportive. Um, and I understand they come from a different generation and what they had to go through is different than what my generation had to go through, which is different than what my son's generation, my children's generation is going to go through. So, I mean, I have empathy for people, but, you know, it goes to a certain extent when it gets really like I'm I'm no longer a human being. Then it's like, all right, well, now I can't deal with you. Yeah. We're going to have a you problem. Uh, we, yeah. we, we can see your work at SkinnerMyers.com. That's uh, S-K-I-N-N-E-R-M-Y-E-R-S.com. Yeah. You can yep. see all the films we've been talking about. Sleeping Negro is coming out in 2021, I believe. Yes. Do you have a Hopefully, month at this point that you know? Uh, we're wait, So we're hoping to premiere at a few festivals, and then we're talking to a couple of buyers now. My goal is to have that film out hopefully by the summer sometime, but we'll see what happens. I mean, it's... Um, we're weird I wish, times. I know. I wish we get it out now, but at the same time, you know, it's going to do what it needs to do, and um, I'm ready to move forward with Frank Embry awesome. under that man's life. That's you know? great. Uh, you're right on time. Uh, um, the introspection, oh, the music... It's just a whole nother thing. You're not Terrence Mount, like you're not anybody like I've ever seen. I've been watching stuff since Thank I you. could have eyeballs to watch things. And uh, you're your own planet, and I love it. Thank and you guys should check out so Skinner much. stuff. You can also see the documentary. Um, what is it from the well? Uh, uh, drinking, drinking from the well. Drinking from the well on Amazon Prime. It's, it's on Amazon Prime. For yeah, about ten years. <laughs> Wow. There you go. It's and it's beautiful. And also, if you want to know what Skinner thinks about uh, film, there's interviews out there talking about film beautifully, eloquently. That's some other else, uh, somebody else's uh, podcast and work. So, fuck mm. them. Anyway, no, uh, no, you can go <laughs> see a lot of good things on Skinner on the internet. I encourage you while you're in in the pandemic to sit down if you really want to get the heartbeat of what the hell time it is and what's going on. And it's and it's also consumable it's not like you're just watching a car crash and you and you just you're torturing yourself it's a good way especially if you're a white person and you really want to like understand some blackness this is a good uh, good place to start and you know do you speak japanese do you speak russian i uh no i learned a little bit of russian to make that movie um all my Russian friends were very graceful with trying to teach me. I had a friend, she's actually Ukrainian, but she's a bodybuilder in New York. And I was looking through my phone the other day with my son, these videos. And I, it was a, he was in first grade. I'm driving to school, him to school. She's like in between sets. And she was like, you're not saying it right. And then she like would say it in Russian. And then I would say it and send her a video. She's like, no. <laughs> and so uh, she and I used to bartend together. She's a sweetheart. And um, she was like helping me. And I was trying to do the Russian for the Kickstarter video that we did. And I learned a little bit, but I, I suck at Russian. It's a very um, hard I language do, to learn. It's a hard language. I do speak Japanese. Japanese um, is hard to learn, too. Your Japanese is awesome yeah, well, when I'm I, saying I, this. I mean, it's it's a... Uh, it is hard to like to speak it. Honestly, to speak it is not hard, but to read and write it is extremely difficult. To speak it colloquially is actually not bad. To speak it in an honorific or pro- properly, depending upon who the, what the relationship is, that's challenging, yeah. right? Um, and it's not like I've never lived in Japan, so my Japanese is a mix of what I've learned from my wife, what I learned in school. And then I had a uh, tutor for a while from Osaka that I would Skype with, and we would just go over lessons because I don't speak it enough here in L.A., so I had to, like, talk to people in Japan to maintain my fluency. Um, so, yeah. 
Skinner Myers, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. You're fascinating. You're Thank a uh, you. lovely dude. We love spending time with you. And we want to have you come back. Yeah. We'll come back when Sleepy Please. Negro comes out. Come back just for reasons. Yeah. And if they start yeah. tearing the system apart, I guess you and I will be in a bunker doing this podcast. Uh, going. Yeah. yeah, there we go. It's, it's going <laughs> off out there, y'all. <laughs> of course, no one will be able exactly. to listen to the podcast because our house will be on fire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's been great to be with all three of you. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully we can spend time you know drinking and and hanging out in person soon yeah you got that we'll get uh we'll get andre on a plane we'll come out and we'll uh, meet these babies of yours and and your wife and we'll we'll just have a big old hoot nanny it'll be fun all right well you guys uh you have a good weekend you guys thank you for listening to ashland podcast we will be back uh very soon with another we don't know who's going to be on this podcast skinner may uh have us talk to somebody Tallien may have us talk to somebody, but these these uh, talking with filmmakers have been very popular. So Skinner, thank you for being a part of that. Yeah. Uh, one last thing before we go, people can sign up for your classes, right? They can go to LMU. They can also get their own student debt and learn from you. Do you ever teach <laughs> any classes on the side, or do you have a side hustle or any kind of thing, or uh, how know, can they I learn from you? I haven't started that yet. I've thought about doing something like that, like a Patreon. But I haven't done it yet. Um, if people, if there's enough interest, I would be happy to share some knowledge. Somebody needs to learn so, how to make films from you. I would learn how to make films from you, bro. You know what you're doing. So, so I mean, if people reach out, uh, if there's a consensus, then I'll put something together. But again, I'm trying to uh, take my research that I'm working on now and try and apply it practically. So yeah. I think... Um, I'm going to be making some interesting films, hopefully, as I get the money to make those on film. Just go to whitefilmmoney.com. It'll be Skinner <laughs> taking your money. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to get on out of here. Well, uh, see you guys okay. soon. Love and peace. And we love you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.